1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians can be divided sort of into three sections. The first four chapters, Paul deals with the reports he has heard and, and how that the Corinthians really have reworked the gospel, that they've really radically reconstrued the gospel in somehow trying to go mainstream with the culture and in the process have rejected Paul, his authority and his message. In chapters five and six, Paul deals with specific issues that have come up in the church, and apparently he's heard this uh, either from the household of Chloe, which you read about in chapter 1, or from the men who brought the letter to him, uh, Stephanus, Fortunatus, uh, Caicus. Um, But in any case, I don't know that the Corinthians thought that these were big issues to be dealt with. Paul deals with them anyway. And when we get to chapter 7, that's the final section of the book, Paul begins to respond to their letter to him. They had written a letter and sent it with these three men to Paul in Ephesus, saying, this is now how we understand these things. And Paul seeks to correct their misunderstanding. As it's been thus far, it will continue through the book. It is Paul versus the church in Corinth. And the the issue of authority, I think Paul seeks to have settled by the end of chapter 4. But in some ways, it still is an issue when we come up to chapters 5 and 6. Chapter 5, in some ways, is a difficult chapter for the the church today. Um, Not in terms of the problem or Paul's solution. That seems clear enough, I think, once we read this. What Paul says is is fairly clear. But the questions come up, how how could such a situation arise in the church in the first place? But more importantly, how do we now apply what Paul says in this particular passage to our situation today? For Paul, there are two problems in this chapter. The first is the blatant problem, the problem of incest, which we will read about in a minute. The second is how the church has embraced this with pride rather than being shocked or mourned or grieving over the sin that has come into the church. I think most Christians would imagine that such a thing could never happen in the church today. You know, or maybe not, given the church's recent history. Uh, But even if it did happen in the church today, I don't think that people would be boasting about it or be proud about it. Uh, But then again, maybe not. Much has uh, changed in the last two or three decades. I think it is worth noting, and I'll say it now and perhaps later when we get to chapter 7. The pagan world had a very different view of reality than what God presents in Scripture. Particularly when it came to the issue of sexuality. And therefore, Paul deals with sexuality far more than what we read in the Gospels. As a result, some people think that Paul is obsessed with the issue. He is not. It is merely an area that requires instruction because of the way that they used to live. You know, some have pointed out that Jesus didn't talk about these things, and therefore we should look to Jesus and his sexual ethic, uh, and not to Paul, this, this single man who, who seemed obsessed with these matters and just seemed to be sort of an anti-woman, a misogynist, you know, this, this bitter old bachelor. Maybe we shouldn't listen to him. 
But we need to understand the context. Jesus was speaking primarily and almost exclusively to a Jewish audience. They understood what God had to say about sexuality. Remember, Jesus is the one, his context is a woman is caught in adultery and they're going to put her to death because she's committed adultery. Paul's context is adultery or fornication is a form of spiritual worship. I mean, these are, these are two entirely different word, worlds. The Jewish world and their view of sexuality and the Gentile, Gentile world. Paul is preaching in societies where sexual activity was a form of the worship of the gods. So he's going to say a lot more about the biblical ethic when it comes to sexuality than Jesus would because Jesus' audience would know the Old Testament and what God has to say about it. So when we get to chapter 7, for example, Paul will say, uh, To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A, woman, a wife should not separate from her husband. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm repeating what Jesus said. Okay? And I'm telling you this, but this isn't original with me. This is what Jesus said. Couples should not separate. But then a few verses later, he says, To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, if a brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And some people say, oh, well, Paul's saying this, not the Lord, therefore we don't have to listen to Paul. No. Paul's audience was radically different. Jesus is speaking to Jews, not to pagans. Okay? Paul's speaking to pagans, and there was a real possibility that, let's say, a husband would become a Christian, and the wife would not. Then what do you do? You have a marriage in which one partner is a Christian, the other one is not. Should there be a divorce? And Paul's saying, absolutely not. And I'm telling you this, not the Lord, because the Lord didn't speak about such things when he was here. So, again, Paul is dealing with a different culture than that uh, we find in the Gospels. We have seen that the Corinthians have tried to go mainstream. In contrast to what we saw last week where Paul says, we as apostles are the scum of the earth. They don't want to be the, they don't want to be at the end of the parade. They want to be at the front of the parade. And therefore, they've taken a very different view of things, including sin, including sexual immorality. I don't think that Paul is, I don't think the primary problem is their tolerance of sin, that is a real problem, but how theologically they have come up with a, a way to say, any good Christian would be tolerant of incest. And Paul is trying to say, no, that's not the case. It, should, it is worth noting, and I would have you note, that the man and his sin are only mentioned in verse number one. The other twelve verses primarily deal with the church's responses, or response or lack of response to this man's sin. Okay. One more thing before we get into chapter five. The last thing we saw last week is Paul reasserting his authority. The model of the steward, the model of the apostle, the model of the father. And he closes the section by calling on the Corinthians to imitate him, like father, like son, I'm your father, you should imitate me. By noting that there are arrogant people in the congregation. 
who think daddy's not coming home and therefore they can do whatever they want. And Paul's like, no, I am coming back. And then lastly, he asks them, okay, when I come back, should I come back with the belt, you know, with the whip? Or should I come with gentleness? He is their father. He is an apostle. He has authority. And in chapter 5, Paul exercises that authority. Let's read, first of all, the first two verses. The problem, Paul's solution. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? There's the problem, and Paul's solution, the man needs to be put out. The problem is, I think, quite clear. There's sexual immorality in the congregation. A man has his father's wife. That is to say, there is a member of the congregation. And by the way, I think it is only the man who is a member of the congregation. I don't think his stepmother is a member of the congregation because both are not addressed, only the man. Okay? He is having an ongoing sexual relation with the wife of his father. Not his, it is not his mother. The language is such, uh, his father's wife indicates that Either his parents are divorced, his father is remarried, or his mother has died and his father is remarried. So it is not his own mother, but his stepmother. We see that it is an ongoing relationship. He has his father's wife. It's not a one-night stand, a one-time occurrence. Uh, It is an ongoing sexual relationship. It is not marriage, by the way. Uh, They have not married. They are, as people would say today, living in sin publicly, and this man is doing it with his father's wife. We don't know what happened to his father. We don't know if his father's still alive. Uh, We don't know if his father's actually divorced this woman. We don't know the circumstances. In, In any case, Old Testament law is very specific. A man is not allowed to marry his father's wife. Now, marriage is not in question here, okay? It is a sexual relationship. Biblically, sexual relationship is not equivalent to marriage, but it is very close. And in a sense, it's an imitation of marriage. And so this man is imitating marriage with his stepmother. And the Old Testament law says this is not allowed. That's important. Equally important, one might even say more important, it was forbidden by Roman law. So this man is not only breaking the law of God, he is breaking the law of man. He is going against the laws of the land. And more than that, he is going against the culture. And this is something just to keep in the back of your mind for for later on. It is important to Paul what the culture does. I was raised as a fundamental Baptist, fundamentalist, and... And we seem to take pride in being different from the world. Paul's not that way. And in fact, at different points, and this is one of them, where he says, hey, you know what's going on there with you guys? That doesn't even happen with pagans. The culture doesn't do that. And we might say, well, Paul, who cares about the culture? Well, apparently Paul does. 
And when we get to chapter 11, when Paul talks about long hair, which always seems to come up, uh, men having long hair, Paul will look to the culture for the norms, not to scripture. But by law, by custom, by culture, what is going on in the Corinthian church is not allowed. Uh, And yet the Corinthians are very proud about this. One almost gets a sense that they're like, you know what? In our church, we have a man who's sleeping with his stepmom. Isn't that great? Like, what? How is this something that you could be proud of? Now, at this point, we're, we have to guess a bit because we only have Paul's side of the story. We don't, we don't have their side of the story. Um, it's reported to Paul, so they don't, they don't give the details, but apparently the people who report it to him do. Um, how is it that the Corinthians could arrive at this particular conclusion? Well, at least three possibilities occur to me, and there, there may be more. The first is they may have misunderstood Paul's teaching about conversion. If you look in 2 Corinthians 5.17, I remember as a child, it's one of the first verses I memorized. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In the NIV it has, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And it may be that the Corinthians had thought, when a person becomes a Christian, a new believer, they're a new person. And all the old relationships are done, they're gone. By the way, one of the things that seems to indicate this is, when Paul says, if if the husband gets saved and the wife doesn't, they don't have to separate. I think the Corinthians thought they do because he's now a new person. So they may have thought, well, you know what? If I'm a new person, then this woman isn't my stepmother anymore because I'm, no, I'm a new person. I'm not my father's son anymore. So we can have this relationship. And where would they get this kind of thinking? Well, it's actually rooted in Jewish rabbinic teaching. The rabbis taught that when a Gentile was converted, proselyted, became a Jew, he or she was like a newborn child, like being born again. And therefore, the relationships of the past no longer existed. So that if in my family, if I were to convert to Judaism, my relationships to my old families no longer exist. By the way, the Jews see the reverse as well, uh, that if a person converts to Christianity, I used to have a gentleman who would visit me who was Jewish, when he became a Christian, his family had a funeral, and they buried him in a Jewish cemetery, because to them, he was dead. Okay. Well, the Jews had the same view coming into Judaism. You're a new person. Now, they were very careful to say, well, wait a minute, this doesn't mean you can marry your sister or your mother or your father or your brother or whatever. You still have to follow the laws of the land. The Corinthians aren't, and Paul points that out. The third possibility, and we will deal with this as we go along, is theologically, technically it's called an over-realized eschatology. Simply what it means is they believe that heaven was already here. 
that the world had changed, Jesus had come, and here we are. And if you remember in chapter 4, Paul said, already you have all you want, already you have become rich, already you have become kings. So all the talk about heaven, and remember what Jesus said in heaven, in heaven there's no marriage. So all that talk, they were now applying to their situation right now here on earth. And taken with their cultural view that the body's nothing, the spirit is everything, the Corinthians tolerated sexual immorality and seem actually proud of the fact we have a new understanding of reality. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. And so Paul says, you are proud and your boasting is not good. They should have mourned and instead they're proud. The solution, the man is to be put out of the congregation. How do you do this? This is the second part Verses 3 through 5, how the solution is to be carried out. Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Not as clear as we might like, although Paul is not physically present, he is present in spirit. And I don't think he means you're in my thoughts or I'll be thinking about you guys when you meet to put this person out. Um, I don't think it is completely clear, but Paul did in fact consider himself, he understood himself to be present with the congregation when they exercise this discipline. He had already made a decision. He had already passed judgment. He is an apostle. He has this authority. He is exercising this authority. He has given a word of prophetic judgment. This guy's got to go. He's got to be put out of the church, and you need to do it. Now, I think that this passage is incredibly important. The whole community of believers has to be together. The church has to meet to do this. This sin has affected the whole community. They are the community of the Spirit. Paul has given them instructions. But I think above all, the authority to put somebody out of the church does not rest with the pastor. It does not rest with the elders. It rests with the congregation. This is something the congregation must do. So they are to meet together. They are to assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul will be present in spirit and they are to hand this man over to Satan. We will see later what this means. It means to be expelled from the community. Uh, He is not allowed to attend the services. He is not allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper. He is not allowed to eat with them. They are not to talk to him. He is to be cut off from the community. But what does this mean, hand over, hand him over to Satan? Simply put, he is to be treated as though he were still in the kingdom of Satan. See, when we're born into the world, we are in the kingdom of Satan. And when God saves us, we transfer our citizenship from one kingdom to another, to the kingdom of God. Well, this guy's got apparently dual citizenship. He's living in the kingdom of God with God's people in the church, But he's acting as though he belongs to the kingdom of Satan. So send him back. 
If he wants to live like an unbeliever, then he should be treated as such. The anticipated result is it will be the destruction of the sinful nature. Its purpose is remedial or redemptive. The redemption or the salvation of this man on the day of the Lord. The destruction of the sinful nature. Well, I think simply put, what Paul wants this man to do is to be put out. I don't think he wants for the man to die. I want to be clear about that. I don't think Paul is saying, okay, I want you guys to meet together and pray that God will kill this man. Okay. Uh, John will tell us in First John that there is a sin unto death. We're not to pray that God would bring death if somebody has committed a sin. I don't think Paul is saying, kick this guy out and then pray that God will allow Satan to take his life. We do find in chapter 11, by the way, that some people had died because of their sin. And Paul talks about that after the fact. But here, church discipline is not handing somebody over so they can be killed. All indications are is that Paul wanted this to be a corrective, a restorative, and a healing process. The purpose is not destruction. The purpose is salvation. Paul doesn't talk about death in terms of destruction. Um, by the way, he tells him, you're not supposed to eat with this man. Well, if the man's dead, obviously you're not going to be eating with him. Okay. Paul doesn't want this man to die. He wants him to be restored. I think Paul envisions this man being put outside the church and suddenly he realizes, what have I done? I'm a child of God, but I cannot hang out with the people of God. And there the person would have to make a choice. Do I continue living the way that I am in this sexual relationship, something that is inappropriate? Or should I give it up and return to the people of God? That's what Paul wants to happen. The man has to make a choice, the community or my sin. And hopefully he would give up his sin and return to the community. Now the basis for Paul making this judgment, or because it seems rather harsh, uh, if we were to practice discipline here and say, okay, we are putting out one of you and we're handing you over to Satan for the destruction of your sinful nature, um, in today's world we might end up in court. Uh, somebody might be suing. Uh, that's very harsh language. How can Paul say such a thing? Well, in verses 6, 7, and 8, he sort of gives a basis for this. But let me give a bit of background. In Paul's writing of 1 Corinthians, he does something a number of times that we call ABA. That is, A is the point he's trying to make. And then all of a sudden, he seems to switch gears. And it's like he's talking about something totally different. But he's actually giving support to what he was saying. And then he returns to it. So it's A, the point. A at the end, in between is B is the supporting material. And this comes up time and time again. Uh, in chapter 7, the, this wonderful passage on vocation is in the middle of a chapter on marriage. And, well, he's trying to support his case. The one you're probably most familiar with is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what's been known as the love chapter. Well, it's actually between chapters 12 and 14. 
which are the A's, it is the B that is put in between there that Paul can make his case or give supporting theological evidence. Here, Paul does that by using the analogy of the Passover. Look, look if you would, as we read verses 6, 7, and 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. The big issue is the community itself. The sin is important, yes, but how the community responds is, is, I think, far more important. Paul's like, don't you guys know? You should know. You should know better than this. This passage, I think we need to sort of go back in time to understand it. Well, first of all, I don't know how many of you bake bread, but for the most part, we don't. We go to Vons or Rouse or someplace else and buy bread. Uh, and we certainly don't make bread every day. If we were to make bread, just suddenly feel industrious and I'm going to make bread, we would go to the store and buy the flour and we would buy a little package of yeast. And the yeast, the amount of yeast you put in compared to the flour is a very small amount. That's not the image Paul has in mind. In the ancient world, women would make bread every day and you know, after they were finished kneading and everything, before they put it in the oven, they would take a small piece of the dough and set it aside. The next day when they would make bread again, that would be put in because that had the yeast from the day before. And in the Jewish community, you would do that for an entire year until it came to Passover. Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then you get rid of all the yeast you throw out, well, you, you bake all the bread, there's nothing left. You clean the house so that you can say there is no yeast, there is no leaven in our house. Now, yeast is used by Jesus as a type of sin, that it has this insidious ability, a small amount, to somehow work its way through our lives and have incredible consequences. Uh, here, I think Paul is saying, the sin of this one person is insidious and it has the capacity to infect the entire congregation. Therefore, you need to get rid of it. Christ is our Passover lamb. We know the story of Passover. They had to kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost so that God would not take their firstborn son. Christ has given his life as the lamb so that God will not destroy us in hell. We will have eternity in heaven. So we're supposed to be a community without yeast. Okay. Paul says, the man's got to go. He's the yeast. And interestingly enough, uh, he, has referred, he mentions here the yeast of malice and wickedness. I don't know if he's referring directly to the man, but the wickedness could be the immorality. Perhaps the malice, maybe, maybe he is doing this to get back at his father. We don't know. But Paul says, out. He has got to go. Now the last part, verses 9 through 13. Paul needs to correct the misunderstanding. Uh, 
And it may have, in fact, led to the situation in the first place. Verses 9 through 13. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Apparently in the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians before this letter, we talked about that when we began our, our study, Paul had written in that they were not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, if you take into account there are people who already didn't like Paul and who were arrogant, they're like, see, it proves my point. What a ridiculous thing to say. Just, Paul, if we cannot associate with sexually immoral people, I can't go down to the local grocery store. You know, I can't do business. I can't leave the house. Paul, what you're saying doesn't make sense. Therefore, we, we reject what you have to say. And Paul admits, if in fact what I meant was you can't associate with any sexually immoral people, yeah, you'd have to basically die. You'd have to leave the world. This is what we find, by the way, in the monastic movement. Separate ourselves from the world so we're not dealing with those people. Uh, Corinth, how can you live in Corinth, the this, this city of great wickedness, and not associate with such people? How can you share? I mean, remember, they didn't have running water. They had to go to the well. I can't even go to the well, the communal well, the neighborhood well, because then I'd have to associate with people who are immoral. Well, of course, this is not what Paul means. What he means is, if somebody says, I am a Christian, I am a brother, a sister, but they're living as though they're in the kingdom of Satan. They're living a life which is marked by sexual immorality or greediness or idolatry, slander, drunkenness or being a swindler. No, then such a person you don't associate with. And by the way, I, I don't think it's merely a case of somebody says I'm a Christian because a lot of people say they're Christians. I, I think he's talking about someone who's a part of your community. Someone who participates in the life of the community. Someone who is an active member of the congregation. By the way, I don't know if you noticed this, but Paul talks about, you know, don't associate with the sexually immoral, the greedy, the swindlers in the first list. In the second list, because he goes through it again, he adds two things. First of all, the slanderer, which I think includes all forms of verbal abuse, and the drunkard which is more difficult, particularly in our culture, where alcoholism is seen as a disease. Addiction is a disease which requires treatment. The church should reject someone who is an addict. The church should reject someone who is an alcoholic. Um, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. In the ancient world, including in the scriptures, very little, almost nothing is said about addiction or alcoholism. It's really quite remarkable. What we do find mentioned are the things that people do when they're under the influence. So particularly violence 
comes up uh, time and time again about people who are involved in drunkenness and violence. Uh, in fact, I mean, I come from a sort of a teetotaling background, abstain, no thank you, don't touch that, uh, which always makes it a little difficult when I read the Old Testament because the Old Testament seems to sort of We'll just enjoy the fact that God has created wine and, and not simply because of the fact that it washes down your food, but you actually sort of get a buzz and, and it sort of makes you feel better. It's like, oh, no, 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 actually, that's what God says. What God is concerned about is when a person goes to excess and in under the influence, then they do things they shouldn't do. That seems to be the focus, not only of scripture, but, but of ancient law. You want to be drunk? That's fine. Just be careful what you do when you're under the influence. So the church is not a place of rejection uh, of people who are struggling with such things. And I don't think Paul is saying that at all. Paul says the man has to be put out. He is doing something that he knows to be wrong. They know to be wrong. He needs to be put out. They are not to associate with him. They are not to eat with him. They are not to talk to him. End of argument. Paul has made his statement. Actually, he has a little bit more to say, but we could end right there and we would have a complete argument. Paul wants to say a couple more things about judging, however. First of all, they are not to pass judgment or sentence on the people of the world, those outside the congregation. The reason is, that's God's work. And God will do that in the future. Okay. Uh, we will see in chapter 6 that we will actually participate in this, but this in the future. It is not our responsibility to somehow judge the world. We are to take the world as we find it. We are to be God's alternative. We are to be God's temple in a world of temples of false gods. We're not to be running around tearing down false temples. We are to be positive examples in this world. Second thing is, we're not to judge them. We're to judge each other. We are to judge one another. We are to act responsibly. And when we boast about people committing sin, that is not acting responsibly. For their own sake, for the sake of the man, he has to be put out. They must excommunicate him. Paul ends by quoting from the Old Testament. And if you have an NIV at the bottom of the page, it has six different references from Deuteronomy where Paul could have gotten this verse from. In Deuteronomy, it reads, you must purge the evil from among you. In Deuteronomy, it means capital punishment. Somebody does this, you must kill them, you must purge the evil. Well, in the New Testament, the church does not have that authority. That belongs to the state. So what is our responsibility? We must put him out. We must get rid of the evil, we must cut it out. This person is to be excommunicated. But wait a minute. Didn't Jesus tell us not to judge? Didn't Paul tell us in chapter 4 he didn't care if he was judged or not? 
Yes, but what we have in view here is a persistent, ongoing situation that refuses to be corrected. The man claims day by day to be a Christian and day by day he is living a life that repudiates that. And you can't have it both ways. You've got to make up your mind. And so, mister, what we're going to do is we're going to put you outside. We are putting you outside the church. And you must decide who is more important to you, that woman or the congregation. Jesus set up a pattern in Matthew 18. If somebody sins against you, first you go to the person individually. If they don't listen to you, then you bring witnesses with you. If they refuse to listen, then you bring the person to the congregation. If they refuse to listen to the congregation, then you put them out. Paul says this man needs to be put out of the congregation. Okay, quickly as we close. What can we learn from this passage? First of all, discipline, church discipline, is not the domain or the province of a few or of the pastor. It is the responsibility of the congregation. Secondly, the ultimate purpose of discipline is remedial, not judgmental. That is, the man is put outside not because they hate him, but rather because they love him. They want him to abandon what he is doing. And the only way he'll, as long as he finds acceptance in the congregation, he's not going to, why would he do that? He must be put out and he must make a choice. The problem we face today in the church is that if, let's say one of you were put out of the church of Melrose, you refuse to recant, you refuse to give up your sin, you say, I don't care what you say, I'm going to continue to do this, and we put you out of the church, well, you don't have to walk very far, but certainly you don't have to drive very far to find another church that you can go into. And the bigger the better, because then you can be anonymous and, and nobody knows what you've done. Uh, but church, important, uh, church discipline is important, and it is to be practiced. I find it interesting in going through this passage how badly we follow Paul's uh, words on judgment. Paul tells us we are not to judge the world, we are to judge each other. I find the opposite oftentimes in the church. We condemn the world and do nothing about what we find in the church. And I find it interesting that we are very selective in our judgment. I remember hearing Os Guinness say years ago, and I forget the exact context, that if a man is drunk on wine, you'll put him out of the church. If he's drunk on money, you'll make him a deacon. Um, we seem to have very strange standards sometimes about what is right and what is wrong. I think it's something we need to take Paul's words to heart. One last thing. How does the story end? Providentially, we know how it ends. Well, we know further down the road. In 2 Corinthians, uh, we find out that they actually did kick the guy out of the church. They did exactly what Paul said. They put him outside the church. Unfortunately, they wouldn't let him back in. They thought, and they misunderstood, they thought that church discipline was for the purpose of punishing. And Paul has to write them another letter in 2 Corinthians to say, will you let this guy back in? He has repented of his sins. He's turned away from that. 
you need to let them back in. Uh, they were, you know, they're like us. They, they got it wrong the first time. They got it wrong the second time. First of all, they're happy. Look at us. We have great freedom in our church. We have a man sleeping with his stepmother. Ah, isn't this great? And then Paul says, no, he's got to go. Okay, put him out. So Paul has to write, no, no, no. Bring him back in. When parents discipline their children, it is so that they can learn. When the church disciplines people within the congregation, it is so they can learn. Paul wants this man to be put out so he can learn. But so the church can as well. Because as long as he stays in the church and the church does nothing about it, it gives us a distorted view of what is right and what is wrong. Let's pray together. Our Father, in this difficult passage, we we are confronted with things that are hard for us to hear, even harder yet to put into practice. May we meditate on these things and take them to heart in the coming days. We thank you for the analogy, the example that Paul uses, that Christ is our Passover lamb. His blood was shed. And we are to, in the Lord's Supper, remember his death, his body being broken and his blood being shed. We do that today. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Paul wrote to these same Corinthians, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you stand please as we sing the doxology together? May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.